This is Fresh Air. I'm Sam Brigger, sitting in today for Terry Gross. The duo Rachel and Vilri have a new album called I Love a Love Song. Listening to their music, you might think that they were singing lost jazz and swing tunes from the 30s and 40s, but they're mostly singing new songs composed by Vilri. The New York Times calls their easy swinging music, quote, as cozy as it is sophisticated. Rachel Price is also the lead singer of the soul-inspired rock band Lake Street Dive. I spoke with Rachel and Vilri early in 2020 about their self-titled debut. But before we get to that conversation and concert, let's hear one of their new songs from the new album. This one is called, Is a Good Man Real? I've never known one What do they do? We've all heard the legends But can they be true? My cousin's best friend's boyfriend Once nearly cooked a meal So is a good man Does he try to remember what his old lady said when he sleeps in on Tuesdays? Does he straighten the bed once he's had three martinis to let you take the wheel? Oh, is a good. Rachel and Villery, welcome to Fresh Hair. Thank you. You guys are very generous. You were willing to perform a little bit for us today. So I was wondering if you could please start with Do Friends Fall in Love? Sure can. Yeah. something new and I know you felt it too when we fell into the passion of a kiss around the world we've shared these roads together every journey is grand when you're holding my hand do friends fall in love like this a love that once was merely one now blazes with an ardent desire A touch that once was just a touch Burns hotter than a five-alarm fire Oh, say, oh, mine For all our days to follow What was innocent before Has become a grand amour Two friends fell in love like this With an ardent desire 
Attached that once was just attached Burns hotter than a five-alarm fire Oh, say you're mine For all our days to follow As friends we lived before And we'll live evermore Together Two friends in love. Oh, that was great. Thank you so much for doing that. That was uh, Do Friends Fall in Love by Rachel and Villery from their debut album, which is also called Rachel and Villery. What was the inspiration for that song? Uh, you know, it was actually a commissioned song. Oh, really? Um, huh. Yeah, a woman wanted to give a song as a present to her husband-to-be, and also she wanted it to work as something for them to walk down the aisle to. So, uh, yeah, that was actually the <laughs> the second draft. She did, she hated the first version. <laughs> what, what, was, what did she like about the first version? Um, the first version acknowledged that unhappiness exists. <laughs> um, People don't want and, that at a wedding. Come yeah, on. they don't want that at a wedding. <laughs> uh, you know, but that's kind of what I like in a song. Right. I, I, I like to acknowledge that unhappiness exists uh, <laughs> in basically every song that I, I write. Your voices blend so well. Was that something that happened right away or did you have to work on that? I think it was pretty immediate. I, w- I mean, it's definitely gotten a lot better. Our voices blend because we understand the style of music, and I think we understand the accent really well, mm-hmm. which is a big part of it. So that sort of fit together immediately. But just two voices harmonizing well together was really tricky. I'd say probably we played a lot of gigs where we sounded pretty out of tune <laughs> yeah. when we first started. And also, I- Rachel's an incredibly strong singer, and I am even if you like my singing, it's you wouldn't call it strong. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we've maybe talk the least about but learn the most um, mm. in, in the process of singing with each other. So did you have to tell Rachel <clears throat> to, to sing quieter? Did you have to Pipe step it up? Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think we've just sort of like, we, we share a single microphone on stage, uh, right. an old 30s RCA ribbon microphone. So you can do a lot with dynamics. She can continue to be very powerful, but just ease off a little bit and I can ease on you mean like actually step back from the microphone? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And Rachel, you said uh, you know the accents of this music. Could you elaborate on that? Well, they didn't. I mean, they didn't talk the same, and they and they sure didn't sing the same um, throughout. Uh, you know, it, it changes from decade to decade. And my guess is a lot of that has to do with how they were being, how they were like sort of self monitoring, mm-hmm. and the type of microphone they were using. Mm-hmm. But you know, it it embodies the sound. Um, of the music that just sort of, sort of the type of accent. I, I, don't, I don't really know. It's like you'd have to talk to somebody who's like a musicologist. Maybe it had to do with like mid-Atlantic or I, I, don't, I don't really know. But it's pretty different. And it would – I think it would sound strange if you didn't sort of emulate the accent somewhat uh, when you were singing this style of music. I think uh, the person who epitomizes the accent um, – best is Johnny Mercer. I think Johnny Mercer yeah. like really understands how to f- like write swinging lyrics and then deliver them in a swinging way. Um, and certainly when I'm writing, I'm thinking a lot about Johnny Mercer. I, I think like something like the laundromat swing, which is something that we do uh, mm-hmm. that I wrote, I was thinking of Johnny Mercer a lot. Oh, when really? I was writing that song. Yeah. Would you guys mind just doing a little tiny bit of that song? Sure. Mm-hmm. 
grab you like a nickel down the money slot Then toss your dirty drawers where it's piping hot If you want to take your baby to the dancing spot You've got to do the laundromat swing Every working fellow on a Friday night By twenty after five days getting right If you're gonna show the lady she's your true delight You've got to do the laundromat swing yeah, that's a great song. <laughs> and at the end, you you uh, you sort of do that double time too, which must be pretty hard to do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where we would double time that that tempo. But, yeah, uh, depends on where we start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fair enough. Um, when you're writing these songs, do you have particular characters in mind or scenes that you're working on? Well, like um, "Treat Me Better," I was thinking about this today. Like "Treat Me Better," I think I was probably coming from a place of. Um, Gershwin's Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, yeah. uh, which is, you know, a, a duet about how we, we – there's no reason for us to be together, but we are and, and you know, maybe we shouldn't be. And by the end, they've kind of come to this decision that they should be. They're going to call the calling off off. So I was kind of trying to write something that would fit in that space in a musical. But because it's not a musical, I get to, at the end, kind of leave the couple in exactly the same pickle that they're in at the <laughs> beginning, which is to say that they really do not speak the same language. Well, I'm glad you brought up Treat Me Better because I was about to ask you to sing this song. Yeah, to me, this song sounds like a mini screwball comedy. Right, exactly. But kind of without the happy ending. Um, I mean, at the end, the only thing they can agree on is the name of the Queen of Spain. <laughs> right. Uh, they haven't decided that, that this is a, a functional relationship. Fair I'm sure it is. <laughs> well, would you, would you guys uh, please play Treat Me Better? Sure. You bet. Here's a tender serenade. Oh, you should treat me better. Let's hear the operetta complete. Emeralds on the promenade. Oh, you should treat me better. These hardly even glitter my sweet. I never prize myself above nobody else But baby thinks he's better than me I order a la carte by her diamond heart And I look on fake yarn Kissing on the Caspian Oh, you should treat me better You didn't pack a sweater for me Throws out the jar Cause it tastes a little fishy to me We go to 21 And in front of everyone I spit out A Brussels sprout Married by the Queen of Spain Oh, you should treat me better I'm liable to forget her first name L-E-T-I-Z-I-A Do I pronounce that the Leticia is the queen's first name. 
That's Treat Me Better, which is um, from Rachel and Vilray's CD. Uh, and that was written by Vilray. Um, that's just a wonderful song. And I think one of the things that you do, maybe, Vilray, when you're writing these, to give them a timeless quality is to just sort of avoid maybe contemporary references. Like in, in none of these songs is there any mention of Twitter or like Facebook and you're, you bring up 21. You know, you're sort of putting it back in an in a older time period. Yeah. Well, 21's still around. It uh, is still but, around, but yeah. <laughs> Who goes? I don't know. <laughs> no offense. Um, yes, I think uh, that's true. I, I try to keep it in a space where you can relate. Um, you know, I, I think if I wrote a song that was about the swinging good time that was happening at 21, we would be veering into a strange uh, space that was completely unrelatable to myself or anybody else. Um, so that's not that appealing to me. But I think there is a timeless quality to these old standards. Rachel, it sounds like you've been interested in singing jazz and swings since you were five. Like you heard an Ella Fitzgerald um, record and that really sort of set you on your way. Um, when you were starting out, were you trying to emulate certain aspects of different singers? Like, were you studying their inflection? Was there anyone in particular that you really spent a lot of time listening to and trying to sound like? 100%. I studied Ella Fitzgerald early, and I completely copied her. And so I, I learned uh, the versions of her songs, her, like, from top to bottom, every single thing. There's there's recordings when I'm, like, 10 doing that. And I once I did that, I kind of went – I had treated uh, – learning in that style. So I, I got to Sarah Vaughn and I wanted to sound just like Sarah Vaughn and I got to Peggy Lee and Doris Day and I I just sort of copied singers and and along the way I realized that this was this was actually a helpful way to learn singing is is to just copy a singer. And there's there's a couple reasons why that works. Um, I think one of the main reasons is that I think people can sing better initially if they're copying somebody because they're a little less concerned they're a little less self-conscious how do you go from <laughs> um emulating people to then finding your own voice just a lot of a lot of work and yeah i think just doing it a lot and digging deep into yourself and also stripping away it's like i've done a lot of like learning of ornamentation and then sort of taking it back down to the heart of it you're talking about singing with sort of more ornament or like a more stripped down version. Could you give an example of that, of each of those? Yeah, sure. I think probably the easiest way to just quickly demonstrate that is is just sort of a, a talkative type of phrasing, more conversational versus, you know, longer held notes. So I'll use all of me because it's, it's a standard everybody knows. So, uh, you know, more more ornamentation. All of me, why not take all of me? Can't you see I'm no good without you? Take my lips, something like that. And then more conversational would be all of me. Why not take all of me? Right. So like in Can't the f- you see I'm no good without you? Yeah, it's a lot more space. Yeah, in the first version like the the when you sing all it's got like 15 syllables <laughs> rather yeah. than just the <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean both are both are fun, but uh you 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 do need to do both. You can't you can't do one all the time. Do you prefer one over the other? I think when I was younger I preferred the, you know, the first way, just mm-hmm. sort of like 
I would always call it just soaking in your own sound, <laughs> just ruminating, just enjoying yourself so in, much. Yeah, 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 exactly. But you know, if you do something all of the time, you do it none of the time, which I think is a really important thing to remember with singing. That's interesting. I haven't had the pleasure to see you guys perform in person yet, but I've I've watched a bunch of stuff online, and you almost always sing with this one microphone, and you're facing each other. So you're really close to each other and you're looking more at each other rather than facing out towards the audience. Why did you decide that that would be the way you perform? We decided it mostly by just having this initial experience. We played a couple gigs uh, early on. After It was shortly after I asked Villery if we could do this together. And I think that we left um, those gigs feeling awful. I was like, like, we were just like, oh, God, this is so much harder than we thought it was going to be to play music like this and and really, like, do it well. I think we sort of thought it was going to come together a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. And one, I don't know why we did a gig where we sang on the same microphone, if that was, like, a conscious choice or it was like, uh, we because we were playing at a bar that there was, like, no sound system and we were bringing everything in. So I kind of think it was more of an accident but we ended up playing um, this one gig at this bar that doesn't have music anymore. Maybe it's doesn't not exist a, doesn't anymore. exist. Great. Uh, it's called Rye, and we had this one microphone, and we looked in, deep into each other's eyes <laughs> during that show. And afterwards, we kind of looked at each other like this big aha moment, which mm. was it was much easier to sing these songs in harmony together if we were just looking at each other and you know staring at each other's mouths uh so yeah it was it was intimate and i think i think that's what we were missing was intimacy cuz a duo is is just i i've never really experienced anything like it like the the, the first handful of gigs cuz i was so, so used to having a band where uh where it's like one person makes a mistake you just move on they they don't you don't notice almost they don't notice you just keep going or whatever but when it's just two people you and there's like, one instrument, yeah. it's Every like... Every mistake, you're like yeah, looking at each other. Yeah. Like, oh my or God. if like <laughs> one person is having a bad night mm-hmm. and you can you can feel that immediately. Like you get off and you're like, you had a terrible show. And they're like, yeah. And you're like, yeah, I felt that the whole time. <laughs> Whereas like in Lake Street Dive, like I would get off and it'd be like, oh my gosh, best show ever. Did you guys have so much fun? And someone would be like, that was awful for me. And I was like, well, right. I didn't know. So that's, you know, you can have different experiences, but you can't have a different experience in a duo. Um, you guys are so close to each other. As I said, you're performing like, you know, just on the other side of a microphone. Are you guys ever worried you're like getting your coffee breath all over your partner? Or? Oh, we have talked about hygiene. <laughs> Dental <laughs> hygiene has been, yeah, a yeah, big we used to, We used to actually brush our teeth before every show. I don't Together. I don't know why we don't anymore. I don't think we stand as close. Yes, that's yeah, true. Yeah, I we, think there was a time when breath was a real concern. It we was had important a much smaller for it to chew some gum. Yeah. Before, so the, now the, a larger microphone blocks it a little bit now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> big microphones make good neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> We're listening to the interview I recorded in 2020 with the music duo Rachel and Villery. They'll be back after a break. Their new album is called I Love a Love Song. Also, Maureen Corrigan reviews the new historical novel by Paul Harding, whose debut novel, Tinker, was a surprise Pulitzer Prize winner. And Justin Chang reviews the new film, Women Talking, by actor-turned-director Sarah Polly. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to the interview I recorded with the music duo Rachel and Villery, who also performed some of their songs, songs written by Villery and influenced by the music of the 30s and 40s. They have a new album called I Love a Love Song. Let's listen to a song from it called Why Do I? 
Oh, the kingdom of the animals is vast Of all those little critters, not one frets about the past And then there's me, thinking constantly Of all those happy days that didn't last Each darling songbird above Sings songs without singing of love The tiger and the lion Don't need shoulders to cry on so wide Do I? Don't sigh And now ain't left Wondering why Each time that fella flies out They needn't weep their eyes out So why do I The Bible taught man Cost the shots for every beast and bird But I've listened hard in my backyard And this is what I heard Bees don't want flowers to shout And lies won't win love from the trout The saddest armadillo Won't cry into his pillow So why do I A different scenario for you, Villery, was I don't know if you still do it, but you did some busking in the New York City subway stations. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know what? I stopped, and I'll tell you why, because they brought cell service in, and there was a magical thing that was happening wherein you couldn't be reached, and it was the only place you couldn't be reached when they didn't have cell service, and people – I – it happened many times that people would come up to me having waited 15 minutes for a train and heard – you know, three songs and they would come up to me with like tears in their eyes mm. having just been broken up with or like – or or in the midst of falling in love with somebody and just been like, I cannot believe what a touching experience I just had musically. And that was like such a high obviously for me. Yeah. Um, and, and once they brought cell phones in, that really went away. Really? And, I, and so did I. Was that a way to sort of just get your chops up to speed after not playing for a long time? Absolutely, yeah. It was – I mean – you know the reverberation in there really make you want to like reach um, and and sing strongly um, and uh, yeah it was it was a great great way to learn. Did you have a, a favorite stop or station? Yeah, the Metropolitan stop on um, on the G train. Why was that's, that? That's that's kind of where everyone goes. Uh, it's a good hub, um, so it's where the G train and the L train meet. So you get a lot of traffic of people coming from Manhattan who've traveled across town on the L and are getting on the G, and uh, and also the G is very slow. So uh, so people so you get a, a, a lingering for a audience time. exactly. Yeah. People require three, three, two or three songs before they're like, okay, I can't not give this person money. If if you've had an emotional experience with three songs, if you've had one with one, you're like, oh God, I'm really feeling things today, you know. Uh, but if you've had one with three, you're like, that guy is making me feel things. And then would people not get on their train and just hang out and listen to you? Yeah, that that definitely happened. And I would get gigs, you know, wedding gigs and and stuff like that. Uh, and and people would film me and. Yeah, it was a it was a very special, and I played a lot with my my friend Damon Hankoff, who I went 
to high school with, he played bass with me a lot. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, it was just like a great way to learn each other in terms of our playing and learn tunes and, and, and make arrangements up. And it was, it was really cool. You have a song called Alone at Last, which is about someone who uh, has some, I guess, social anxiety. But then when they finally find someone who they're in love with, then they finally feel that they're alone at last. And it sounds Rachel revealed in an interview that that's a little bit about yourself. Yes, that's a song that I wrote for my fiance, and uh, you know, I don't generally. Uh, well, I didn't write it for her, but I wrote it about my feelings uh, for her. And yeah, I'm uncomfortable around people. And as a New Yorker, I think many New Yorkers are sort of neurotic people who are uncomfortable around people. And I think it can come off as not quite, I don't know, grumpiness maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm often grumpy, but my fiance kind of puts me at peace. I've had a lot of feedback from introverted people who say, well, that's how I feel too. So I think I hit on something. Would you guys mind just doing a few lines of that? Sure. Yeah, that's wonderful. How does your uncomfortableness around crowds affect performing live? You know what? I love it. I can't quite explain it. Uh, And maybe eventually I will come to hate it. But um, I think there's something about (laughs) having a stranger say that they've touched you, um, touched them, that is uh, very fulfilling uh, for me. And um, it's as simple as that. Hmm. When Rachel said that she wanted to sing with you, did you start writing pieces specifically for her? You know, I think I started off just sort of writing. Rachel was talking about, like, learning Ella Fitzgerald and learning Sarah Vaughan. And I think I was, like, very committed to the idea that I should be very pure and write for people of the era. Um, and so I was writing Sinatra songs and Fats Waller songs and... Um, Billie Holiday songs and Peggy Lee songs. And I think that's how I did it for a long time. And we certainly sing a lot of those songs. Mm -hmm. But I think Alone at Last is a song for Rachel. And uh, and I think we have a song called Without a Thought for My Heart, which I definitely wrote with Peggy Lee in mind, but with also knowing that Rachel doesn't sing like Peggy Lee very often and that I think she would kill it singing mm-hmm. like Peggy Lee, kind of in a vulnerable, whispering, soft space. And it took us a while to get to that place in the recording studio where she felt comfortable doing it. But it's everything I, I dreamed of when I was writing that song. And it's not exactly what you would think of as a Rachel Price song, but I think it's like exactly what I think of as as an ideal um, interpretation. Hmm. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you guys, and I'm going to ask you to do uh, 
one more song. And Vilri, this is a song that you just mentioned, which was Without a Thought from My Heart. You said this is a song that you wrote thinking about Peggy Lee? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She has a very tender, very quiet way of singing that is incredibly all hers. And uh, it's my platonic ideal of what romantic female crooning is. So, yeah, that's I wrote it with that idea. Um, well, why don't we hear it? But before we do, I just want to thank you both so much for coming on the show. Rachel Villery, thank you very much for being on Fresh Air. Thank you for thank talking Thank you very much. We always knew that I was too young for anything beyond Just your selfish bit of fun Right from the start Without a thought for my heart You held me near And simply whispered That we should be so glad For the moments that we had We knew you'd part Without a thought for my Now ain't the time for thinking I should have done my thinking months ago I may not know which man's worth keeping But now I surely know The kind who ought to go A parting kiss With this I crumble and all my fantasies are scattered by the breeze I played my part without a thought for my heart it wasn't smart it wasn't smart I played my Without a thought for my heart. That was Rachel Price singing and songwriter Vilri on guitar from their self-titled debut album, Rachel and Vilri, which came out in 2019. Their new album is called I Love a Love Song. Coming up, Maureen Corrigan reviews This Other Eden by Paul Harding, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his debut novel. Also, Justin Chang reviews the new film Women Talking about the response of a group of women to the sexual violence in their religious community. This is Fresh Air. The following message comes from NPR sponsor Satva. Founder and CEO Ron Rudson is proud that each Satva mattress is made to order. Your mattress has a birth date after you order it. Nothing sits in muggy warehouses. Nothing sits in muggy basements of stores. When you order it, you're getting your product made fresh for you, and people love that. To learn more, go to SAATVA.com slash NPR. Paul Harding's debut novel, Tinkers, was a surprise winner of the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Like Tinkers, Harding's latest novel, called This Other Eden, tells a sweeping story of impoverished New Englanders. But in this case, the story of their struggle against the crushing prejudice of their time 
is inspired by a horrific historical event. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan has a review. The brave new world of better living through planned breeding was ushered in in the summer of 1912 at the first International Congress on Eugenics held in London. Although Charles Darwin hadn't intended his theories of natural selection and survival of the fittest to be practically applied to human beings, the generation that followed him had no such qualms. In fact, the main speaker at the Congress was Darwin's son, Major Leonard Darwin. We often think of Nazi Germany when the term eugenics comes up, but of course the U.S. has its own legacy of racial categorizations, immigration restrictions, and forced sterilizations of human beings deemed to be unfit. Paul Harding's stunning new novel, This Other Eden, is inspired by the real-life consequences of eugenics on Malaga Island, Maine, which, from roughly the Civil War era to 1912, was home to an interracial fishing community. After government officials inspected the island in 1911, Malaga's 47 residents, including children, were forcibly removed, some of them rehoused in institutions for the feeble-minded. In 2010, the state of Maine offered an official public apology for the incident. You could imagine lots of ways a historical novel about this horror might be written, but none of them would give you a sense of the strange spell of this other Eden, its dynamism, bravado, and melancholy. Harding's style has been called Faulknerian, and maybe that's apt, given his penchant for sometimes paragraph-long sentences that collapse past and present. But in contrast to Faulkner's writing, the lost cause Harding memorializes is of an accidental Eden where so-called white Negroes and colored white people live together unremarkably, none of them giving a thought to what people beyond the island saw as their polluted blood. Harding begins, traditionally enough, with the origins of Malaga, here called Apple Island, where again, brushing close to history, he describes the arrival of a formerly enslaved man called Benjamin Honey and his Irish-born wife Patience. Together they build a cabin on a bed of crushed clamshells, have children, plant an orchard, and make room for other castaways. The present time of the novel begins in that fateful year of 1911, when a governor's council of bureaucrats and doctors comes ashore to measure the islanders' skulls with metal calipers and thumb their gums. By the next year, the islanders are evicted, their homes burned down. The resort industry is becoming popular in Maine, and the islanders' settlement is regarded as a costly blight on the landscape. Harding personalizes this tragedy by focusing on a character who has a chance of achieving what many would consider a better life. Ethan Honey is fair enough to pass for white, and his artistic talents earn him the support of a wealthy sponsor. 
In affecting detail, Harding describes how Ethan is lovingly deloused by his grandmother on the eve of his departure, and how the hard scrabble islanders put together a celebratory feast of lobsters, mushrooms, and berries. Harding says, The islanders were so used to diets of wind and fog to meals of slow-roasted sunshine and poached storm clouds, so used to devouring sautéed shadows and broiled echoes, they found themselves stupefied by such an abundance of food and drink. Ethan's fate is left uncertain, but a century later, his surviving paintings will form the bulk of a fictional exhibit in Maine, commemorating the centenary of the islanders' eviction. Harding makes his readers feel how the measured academic prose of the exhibit's catalog leaves so much out. The exhaustion of the islanders' daily lives of labor, the nuance of human relationships, the arrogant certitudes of racism— All those elements and more are what Harding condenses into this intense wonder of a historical novel. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of English literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed This Other Eden by Paul Harding. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the new film Women Talking by actor-turned-director Sarah Polly. This is Fresh Air. Several years ago, the Canadian actor Sarah Polly shifted into feature filmmaking with movies including Away From Her and the personal documentary Stories We Tell. Her latest film, Women Talking, is an adaptation of Miriam Taves' 2018 novel about a Mennonite colony devastated by sexual violence. Our film critic Justin Chang says that the movie, now playing in theaters, boasts one of the year's strongest ensembles, featuring actors including Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, and Jesse Buckley. Here's his review. Miriam Taves' novel Women Talking is drawn from events that came to light in a Bolivian Mennonite colony in 2009, when a group of men were charged with raping more than 100 girls and women in their community. Over a period of a few years, the perpetrators immobilized their victims with cattle tranquilizer before assaulting them in their beds. For a long time, community leaders attributed these mysterious attacks to the work of evil spirits. Both the novel and now Sarah Polly's superbly acted movie adaptation scrupulously avoid showing the attacks themselves. They're less interested in dwelling on the horror of what the men have done than in asking what the women will do in response. As the movie opens, the accused men have been jailed in a nearby town, And the other men in the community, complicit in spirit, if not in action, have gone to bail them out, leaving the women behind. The movie makes no mention of setting, as if to suggest that this story, filmed with English-speaking actors, could be taking place anywhere. So there's a sense of abstraction built in from the outset, something that Polly emphasizes by shooting in a nearly monochrome palette. Not quite black and white, not quite sepia-toned. Most of the movie takes place in the hayloft of a barn where eight women have gathered. They've been chosen to decide what course of action they and the other women in the colony will take. Some of the women, like those played by Jesse Buckley and a briefly seen Frances McDormand, believe they should ultimately forgive the men, in keeping with their strict Christian values. 
Others, like those played by Claire Foy and Michelle McLeod, insist on fighting their attackers, to the death if necessary. Sheila McCarthy and Judith Ivey are especially good as the group's elders, who try to keep the peace as the arguments become more and more heated. I want to stay and fight. But won't we lose the fight to the men and be forced to forgive them anyway? I want to stay and fight too. No one's surprised that you do. All you do is fight. Is this really how we are to decide the fates of all the women in this colony? <laughs> and just another vote where we put an X next to our position? I thought we were here to do more than that. You mean talk more about forgiving the men and doing nothing? Everything else is insane. But none of you will listen to reason. Well, why are you here with us? Why are you still here with us if that is what you believe? Just leave with the rest of the do-nothing women. She is my daughter, and I want her here with us. Is forgiveness that's forced upon us true forgiveness? Keep nonsense like that to yourself, please. Women talking might feel stagey at times, but it never feels static. The discussions here are mesmerizing especially since Polly has shot and edited them to feel as dynamic and propulsive as possible. At times, I wanted the movie to be even talkier. While the book's dialogue has been understandably truncated, sometimes the conversations feel a little too engineered for rhetorical flow. But none of that diminishes the gravity of the drama or the impact of the performances, especially from Rooney Mara as Ona, who emerges as the most thoughtful member of the group. Ona has as much reason as anyone to want revenge. She's pregnant from one of her attacks. But instead, she proposes a radical third option. What if the women leave the colony and the men behind, and begin a new life somewhere else? As it unfolds, the movie etches a portrait of women who, even apart from the assaults, have only ever known lives of oppression. None of them were ever taught to read or write and so the task of taking the minutes of their meeting falls to a sympathetic schoolteacher named August, the movie's only significant male character, sensitively played by Ben Wishaw. August is in love with Ona, and wants to look after her and her unborn child, but she gently refuses. Whatever the women are going to do, they have to do it together and on their own. As the idea of leaving gains momentum, the debate keeps intensifying. How will they survive in the outside world? Should they bring their young sons with them? Will their departure keep them from fulfilling their duty to forgive the men? Or is it only by leaving that they can even consider forgiveness? There's obvious contemporary resonance to a story about holding male abusers accountable, though it would be reductive to describe women talking as a Mennonite Me Too drama, as some have. What distinguishes this survival story from so many others is that even as it acknowledges the abusive, patriarchal power structure in this religious colony, it still takes seriously the question of spiritual belief. It's the women's faith in God that ultimately empowers them to imagine a better, fairer way of life. You may disagree with that conclusion, and I suspect that on some level, Sarah Polly wants you to. Women Talking comes to a deeply moving resolution, but it also knows that the conversation is just getting started. Justin Chang is a film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed the new film, Women Talking. On Monday's show, the true story of hundreds of workers recruited from India to work on Hurricane Katrina reconstruction, who found themselves trapped in squalid work camps with no prospect of the green cards they were promised. 
Labor organizer Saket Sony chronicles the human trafficking case in his book, The Great Escape. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shurock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger.